Hello, and thank you for joining us for the Hatchbend Apostolic Church web broadcast. In our society today, some, and yes, sadly, maybe even most, question the value of preaching in their lives. But we still believe what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In essence, Paul preached that God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And so that's why we still place such a high value on the preached word of God in agreement to the scripture. And so now I'd like to thank you again for joining us for a message from the pulpit of Hatchbend Apostolic Church. Praise the Lord. Let's read the verse that is the key verse. It's um, Ezra 3.6 and it just says, uh, from the first day of the seventh month began they to offer burnt offerings unto the Lord, but the foundation of the temple was not yet laid. You may be seated. The title is Restoring Worship, and what it is going to be referring to today is God had basically uh, is disciplined Israel. The reason that they was disciplined was because pure and simple idolatry. And, you know, there's a song um, that I have listened to and there's a, a phrase in the song. It is like God has asked in humanity, why do you keep acting as if I am not enough? And to me, that would, would be a question that God would be answering, asking of Israel. And Israel kept looking so-called to other gods and God was basically tired of it. So through the prophet Jeremiah, he just tells them it's over. You're going into captivity for 70 years, 70 years. After 70 years is accomplished, I will bring you back. And what this story picks up is at the return of them coming back. And that's why it's titled Restoring Worship. Now probably if you was to ask each and every one of us what worship is, it would vary a little bit. You know, what we think worship is. You know, it's it's not just us coming in church, raising our hands or singing or praising the Lord, so to speak. It's it's all that. But worship is so much more than that. It's, it's really, um, we don't just worship in here. You know, we take worship with us. Who are we? We are worship. You know, that's why it said, you know, it, if you're a Sunday and Wednesday Christian, the Bible says whoever transgressor is hard. If you're 24-7 Christian, then worship is who you are because you can worship anywhere you're at. It doesn't matter the circumstances. I'm not saying it's going to be easy, but worship is who we are. It's an attitude of the heart. I mean, you can be in the most trying circumstance you, you are in. Are you thankful for it? No, you're not thankful for the situation, but God said he would give us peace that would pass all understanding. Am I the person that says I've conquered everything? Absolutely not. I ain't conquered probably 1% of everything. But this I know, I've got to believe the Bible and know what my eyes is looking at. So worship is more than just coming in here thanking God for what he's done. Worship is thanking God basically all the time and just being thankful for what God has done for me what he's done for my family, for, for my children, for the way he's blessed us, for the way he's blessed my wife. And it's just an attitude. It really is. So Israel's coming back, and he's telling them that we got to restore this. So he's, 
the first day, um, from the first day, the seventh month began they to offer burnt offerings unto the Lord, but the foundation of the temple was not yet laid. The first thing they had to do was start making sacrifices unto the Lord, burnt offerings, and we'll see in just a minute how that was um, important, very important. But, so here is, now this is unique only to the Lord, and only God can work this out. But God told them, through his prophets in the beginning, I'm going to use one nation to discipline you, then I'm going to discipline that nation and I'm going to put it in the heart of another man to bring you home. And that kingdom was Persia. And Cyrus, he's sitting in his palace thinking, you know what? The Jews has been away from their home for 70 years and you know what? They need a temple. They need a temple. They need a place where they can worship God. And I must build a temple in Jerusalem to Yahweh. And he's thinking he's coming up with this on his own. But what he don't understand. Now, I will say this of Cyrus. You know, we can say, you know, God was using him, but more or less when you read of the man, he was more or less accommodating to everyone. So we can just say God used him to accomplish his will. That's why that when a church does um, a building, uh, a project or anything like that, people comes up that don't come to this church, never will come to this church. You know, I see y'all doing something, I want to help. It's just God puts it in them. They just stop and give. See a church doing a car wash or something like that, car is just meticulously clean, wash my car. You know, God just puts it on people. So here's Cyrus thinking, you know what? I need to do this. Not really realizing it's God that put the notion inside of him. So they had been brought there, let's just say, I'm gonna just round it off and say around 590 BC. King Nebuchadnezzar, he captured, he destroyed Jerusalem, Jerusalem and the temple. But in time, that they had been in captivity. The Persian Empire rose, but it was ruled by Cyrus. He conquered the Babylonians. He captured uh, the capital in 539 B.C. And Cyrus, we know of, that he uh, was aware of this subject of the Jewish people, but to him, they had an unusual, they had unusual laws, unusual devotion to their God. And somehow... God led him to the conviction and had, that God had given him dominion over the nations, therefore, that he ought to build the temple, that he ought to build the temple to, um, to God. Now, I'll just get back real quick. It says, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he hath charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Now this is Cyrus talking. Here's a man that's not Jewish. He's not going to be Jewish. And he says, Yahweh has given me the strength to conquer all nations. Therefore, I'm going to build him a temple in Jerusalem. Not really realizing what is really going on. So God does this. He had no idea what was going on. But when the Jews had been exiled to Babylon... The prophet Jeremiah prophesied that they would be there 70 years and he would use another kingdom 
to destroy Babylon. And I want to read you just one thing. It says, and it shall come to pass, this is Jeremiah, after 70 years are accomplished, that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, saith the Lord, for their iniquity in the land of the Chaldeans will I make it perpetual desolations. All right, think about that. God said, Israel, it was because of you chasing other rabbits and you wouldn't look to me when you needed something. You're going into captivity for seven. You're leaving your land, okay? But God said, the nation that takes you away from your land, I'm not going to forgive them, so to speak. Their desolations is going to be perpetual. I'm not giving it up. I'm going to destroy the Babylonians, and they're not coming back. Now, God meant this. Jeremiah prophesied this, and he said, I am going to do it, which would be begin the process of the Jews returning to their homeland, convinced that he needed to build this temple. Cyrus proclaimed to all the Jews they was free to go back to their homeland and rebuild, but he made sure that they didn't leave empty-handed. He commanded the neighbors to provide them with silver and gold, goods, livestock, besides their free will offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. King Cyrus also brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem and put in the temple of his gods. Now here's this man doing all of this, and it's right what God wants him to do. And it's just one of those things like we got to say in today, you can't make this up. Here is Jerusalem punished for something that they need to be punished for. The time is up. Another nation takes over, destroys that one, and here's the king saying, what can I do to help you to go back home? Let me command the people to give you money to get home. Oh, you're building a temple? Let's give you treasures. Oh, that which was stole from you out of the temple? You know what? It's still here. I'm going to make sure you have it when you go home. You can't make it up. God is leading him. You can say all about the kings, all about the government. You can do it and say, man, what's going to happen? God's got it in control no matter what we're looking at. God knows he's taking Cyrus and Cyrus is just saying, you know, it's a good thing I had this thought. I'm working this out. No, Cyrus wasn't working it out. God was moving him just as he wanted him to move. And he was taking it and working it out. Now, under when they started to leave under the uh, leadership of Zerubbabel, the Bible says 42,360 Jews along with 7,337 of their servants travel back to Jerusalem. They're going back home. And then everyone unto his city. About three months after their arrival, when the seventh month had come, now that's like at the end of December, excuse me, September um, and the first of October is when that month is, had come the people gathered themselves together as one man, as one man. Now here is a people been gone for seven years. They come back, so to speak. It's like nobody's got to tell them it's church time. <laughs> They've been gone for 70 years. The priest ain't had to blow no trumpet or nothing. They gathered together as one man. It's time to do this. So the Bible says they gathered it, buddy, they just, and they're there. The Bible says that. 
Jeshua the high priest along with his fellow uh, priest in Zerubbabel, which was the civil leader, along with some of his associates, built a new altar, listen, on the very original altar in order to be able to offer burnt offerings to the Lord according to the law of Moses. Now, that was it. And to me, that, that, speaks, that speaks of a type when you take, they went back, they didn't, you know what? We've been gone for 70 years. Things have changed. Everything's modern. Let's just put up an altar and do it. No, sir. They had gathered as one people. We're going we're gonna to erect an altar, but it's going to be on the original part that it was on. We ain't changing nothing. So I want to go and read just um, something if it's still in my Bible. Okay. The Bible, I'll just read. Uh, the Bible talks of an issue in in First Kings. So they take and the seventh month was special to them. It was the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of Tabernacles, and First Kings eighteen. It just I, I didn't give no verse. It just tells the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel. You'll know what I mean. So this is about restoring the altar, restoring worship. So I just want to draw some points from this. So he takes and he goes and he tells the people, look, Israel, it's not about saying God, Yahweh is your God when God blesses you and then you're looking at other idols thinking. And he basically tells them, Elijah did, it's time to choose. So he, he tells uh, gather me all the prophets, all the prophets of the groves. You gather me and let's, let's just have it out. So they do. They go there. So they take and he's, he's um, going to have a meeting with them. So they take, they came, and he just tells them, you go first. So they, I mean, I know you know this story. But what they done, they just, they just went, they just take, they just have a time. And Elijah basically, he just, I don't know if he would say he made fun of them, but he didn't hold his tongue. I mean, he, he, he just kept making pot shots at them. And he just kept on. But the Bible says in 1836, and it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. I'm going to stop there. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. Now this is when Elijah met with them. What's unique about that? I know you've heard of the king Jeroboam. He's all in First Kings. But what makes this unique is about 50 years before this, wicked king Jeroboam has disassociated Israel with this offering, with the offerings. He says, you don't have to go to Jerusalem. Just offer where you want. Go to the groves. You don't have to go to Jerusalem. No. So he put up the high places. The Bible says he took anybody. You want to be a priest? Here's your license. You're a priest. So Jeroboam had changed this. But the man of God hadn't forgot. That's why I believe he let the people go that the ones he let them go. They cut their cells. They offered their God 
Uh, Elijah just made fun of him and said, hey, he's on a trip. You're not screaming loud enough. All the way, and the Bible says, to the time of the evening sacrifice. Elijah hadn't forgot. The king, of, now this was the king of the 10 northern tribes. He may have said, you don't have to do this, but Elijah still knew God was God. So that's when he takes Elijah. He went and does this. Now, he offers this. We, we, I believe could all agree that the prophets of Baal, they had passion, commitment, sincerity, devotion. But the one thing they did not have is the God that answers by fire. That's the one thing they didn't have. And just so, and, and so, but they took, and now I want to go back to, let me, I want to go back to where I'm going to read back in Ezra. Let's go to three. First verse, and when the seventh month was come and the children of Israel were in the cities and the people gathered themselves together as one man, then stood up Jeshua the son of Zodiac and his brethren the priest and Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and his brethren and built the altar of God of Israel to offer burnt offerings thereon as it is written in the law in the law of Moses, the man of God. Verse three, and they set the altar upon its basis for fear was upon them because of the people of those countries, and they offered burnt offerings thereon unto the Lord, even burnt offerings morning and evening. Now, I believe what this, where we can take this and relate this to us right now, is that Elijah knew that these people, now you can go back and read in Kings, and you can answer it for yourself. They had all day defied God. But when God answered by fire, it says everyone fell on their face. But do you think that meant anything to Elijah? Because his, his next words tell us, let none of them escape. I'm telling you, in our day, it takes a spirit of discernment. Because all of a sudden, we had a people that all day had degraded God. Now all of a sudden, the Lord, he is God. But to Elijah, you're not leaving here. Now you just do with that what you will. But I'm telling you, going back to Ezra, the Bible says that this, them, them setting the altar up on the original base, and it was time to offer a sacrifice. And But the Bible also says of the Jewish people. Now they'd been away for 70 years and they had come home. And it says, for fear was upon them because of the people on those countries. When they came back, how many times have you heard, I don't even recognize this place. I'm telling you, that was the people of God. They came back to their homeland. It had been destroyed. It was like, where are we at? All of a sudden, their neighbors believed in other gods. They didn't know where they was at. But when they set the altar up, this was the first act of defiance of the neighbors that was around them. 
So then the Bible says that they was fear, fearful because it was like, I wonder what's going to happen. Everybody else believes in something else. We fixing to say we believe in Yahweh, Jehovah. So they take, set this up. But what I want us to get from this is in, in the community around, all around them, they went to the altar. If you're afraid, sure, I get afraid. If we are fearful, uh, fearful, life just knocks us down, we can go to our altar afraid. But I'm telling you, when the fire fell, they left there with strength. I'm telling you, that's where their strength came from. Because when the fire fell for Israel and God consumed that sacrifice, when the sacrifice went up, I'm telling you, that's where their strength rose. It's because the Bible even says it to confirm it. They was in fear. They didn't know what was going to happen. So when life just pushes us like that, I mean, it is not, it, 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 it don't make us less of a Christian for life to beat us down. But we don't have to stay that way. Now, I admit, some things you just don't get over with in a day. But I'm telling you, God is where he will meet us at the point of an altar. And this is not the only altar. It's just like worship. Altar is where you make it. God is with us. The Bible, in the fourth chapter of John, he told the lady, he said, God is seeking, seeking those that will worship him in spirit and in truth. Remember how that's placed. It's not seeking those that will worship him in truth and in spirit. No, you need the Holy Ghost the Holy Ghost to guide you in the truth. It's, that has to be done right. You need the Spirit of God because the Spirit of God will lead and guide us into all truth. So God is looking for that. So when I am feel overwhelmed, make me an altar because God will see that that's where I will receive strength. And that's where Israel gained their strength was at the altar and, they, and the Bible says that's where they started because that's where they met. And that's why it had to be done first before any of the building was erected. That's why the original spot, you couldn't change it. No, I mean, that is important. You could not change it. It had to be done on the right spot. So they take, they do it. And these two sacrifices, the importance of it, these two sacrifices, it was a first act of worship. It was restoring the burnt offering. Morning and evening, these two sacrifices were offered for all the members of the community and rather than just for a single individual. These sacrifices were fundamental to the Jewish people maintaining their covenant relationship with God. This was a different dispensation but it was for all of the people. That's why it was such a morale booster, per se, when it come to Israel, when they seen God consume the sacrifice. Because this wasn't for just the priests. This was for all of Israel. And the Bible says they had gathered as one man. So it was like everyone got a shot of B12 spiritually. When they came there, God encouraged them and strengthened them. So it didn't matter what was going on around them. God had just strengthened them and gave them what they needed in the law, in the law of Moses. That was, uh, this was, the burnt offerings was meant for a covering of people's sin and turning away wrath from them. 
So this was restoring worship to God's people. And they did that. This was a reminder that what God had done for them and their holy, holy covenant that God had with them. They celebrated, they celebrated the feast, particularly in the, in the, the, the seventh month. During that month, they was commanded to observe the Feast of Trumpets, Day of Atonement, Feast of Tabernacles, or Boost. It seemed appropriate, therefore, that during this sacred month, they restored daily burnt offerings also. They began with the Feast of Tabernacles. It was joyful of a yearly uh, process on their feast. They would begin to offer all the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices, all the other appointed feasts. They also began to offer free will offerings to the Lord. Now, they began to do this. It's, they did it with a joyful celebration. So they take, beginning on the 15th day of the month, God, them, God commanded them to rejoice for him for seven days. Seven days it was written. It said Moses uh, had written this. You shall take on the first day of the fruit of the splendid trees, branches, palm trees, and and." Um, boughs of leafy uh, trees and willows of the brook and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. And why rejoice in waving of the fruit and the branches before the Lord seven days? Because God had delivered them from Egypt's slavery was the reason. It was a week-long reminder to them what God had done. Don't forget. Don't forget what God had done. Now worship, worship, had to be restored before the building was done. And we see that. Now, it occurred to, re, to rebuild the temple and they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. Upon re, uh, arriving in Judah and Jerusalem, the Jews had begun a great deal. They had a lot to do. I mean, their, their home had been... Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, he had destroyed the place. That's why when they came back, they were... They was, uh, I just can't imagine what it'd be like. I mean, they was devastated. They first took to their basic needs after the altar, building homes, um, getting done what they needed so they could simply survive. But once their basic needs was met, fully restoring their worship and relationship with God was a priority for them to do. No doubt they, they prayed, sang songs of Zion, took care of their basic needs, and freed from this, they built the altar we see. The Israelite shows us that we can and should make a priority of work. Now, our world, the flesh, and the devil will constantly work to distract us from our worship and making other things seem more necessary and certainly more desirable, but nothing can take the place of worship. And it's just life. I'm telling you, it's just, it has been said so many times before, but I'm going to say it again of so many things that's supposed to be invented to help us in our life. <sighs> I mean, and, and just take this from a guy that don't even like to use a phone. It is amazing to pass people just a few feet from you that's not even looking at you when they pass. And you, you think... Don't you even care? You know, and I know that sounds self-serving for me, um, but we have all these inventions and stuff that's supposed to help our lives, speed up our lives, so to speak, 
and we find that we just don't have enough time. There's not enough. But I'm telling you, I love time, the concept of time. Time hadn't changed. They're still the same 24 hours that they was when God created it. We are just overwhelmed. Have, have we cut out things to do in our life? Probably not. We've added to them. You know, I don't need 15 things to do. I need 20. And then when we, and uh, a lot of it, I'll admit, we're just trying to survive life. And so when it comes to worship, our prayer, I mean, there's just so much it seems that needs to be done. And soon as you sit down or lay down or ever what posture you use to pray, the mind starts running. And you think, man. And if you was to put it on a scale of equal it to prayer and what I need to be done, there's nothing that could pair with this short time that we're here in eternity. There's nothing that can compare with it. But life makes it seem like if I don't do this one item, I won't be alive tomorrow. <laughs> and it really won't matter probably. But we're just human. We're just human. And okay, I'll go on. And one thing, I'm telling you, this is me. Our moods and feelings cannot be our guide. And if anybody is guilty of that, it's that guy holding the mic. <laughs> but I guess, I don't know, maybe, maybe there's a little bit of that in the soul. I don't know. Um, but can be doing so good and something happens and if you drive in traffic, you know what I mean? You know, somebody cut you off and you know, I was having a good day up to then, you know. But, and then you're, you, you know, you come to church and, and just, it's just life. You come in and you think, you know, God really and truly, you didn't have nothing to do with this you have truly blessed me and God give me the strength to blot all this out and to tell you that I am grateful for your love your affection your kindness to me when I have not been good when I have come in here and sat on my hands when I should have worshipped you and been thankful forgive me God and just worship you like I know that you deserve because life, life would just do that to us. And I'm saying it's just, I'm not making excuses for it. I'm saying that I just, I just understand it. It's just life. So after they restored worship, the Jews began preparing for the work of the temple. They hired masons, the Bible tells us, carpenters. They sent food, drink, olive oil to the people of Tyre and Sidon to get the cedar logs to use in their construction. Now they did this. They was ready to build the temple. In the second month of the second year, they had arrived back in Jerusalem. Work began on the temple under the supervision of the Levites. Those from 20 years old and older, if I'm not mistaken, David changed that. It was 30, 
If I'm not, I'm, if, and I'm almost positive on this, David is the one that changed that to 20. Uh, the supervision of the Levites, those 20 years old and older, went to work. The first task, of course, was to lay the foundation, rest the structure, and they celebrated through praise and worship. When the workers had laid the final stone for the foundation, great joy swept through the Jewish people. For so long they had been without a temple, and the people had a heart for worship. Seeing that, the, seeing that in the building they had an altar, now they had the first real evidence of a place for worship for the first time in so long. The Bible says the priests took up their vestments, they took up trumpets, the, they took up, the Levites took up cymbals ready to play before the Lord. All this was done just as King David had, earlier had prescribed as the trumpets played, the cymbals were clasped. They lifted up their voice and sang praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. To the Lord they sang together by chorus. That is, the choir of singers was divided into group, two groups. The Bible says one sung a line, then another part sang a line. And they, they praised the Lord. The Lord is good and his love endures forever. They sang he is good for his mercy endures forever towards Israel. And seeing the foundation laid, the Jewish people were not looking at mere foundation stones. They recognized in this foundation stones of God's goodness and his unfailing love towards them. Now, I don't know if there was some there that just said, you know, it wasn't right for God to take us back and judge us for 70 years and then bring us back. I don't know. But that's a whole nother story. But that's really not the point. The point was God is going to be fair. He's going to be unpartial when it comes to humanity. So God judged them through his covenant with them. He brought them back. He let them rebuild the temple. And it was all for his love to his people. That's what it was for. Now, he hadn't forgot his covenant with them. Some may feel when you read situations like this, and you, you know, we have, we have people that, that, that blast Christians today. If you say you serve a loving God, then why is there so much suffering in the world? Why, and, and you try to tell them, God gave us a free will. There is a thing called sin. That just multiplies and multiplies and multiplies and multiplies. But they don't want to hear that. If you serve, the Bible says God is love. Well, God is love. But if he's a God of love, then why can't he do this, this, and this? And, and then you would have some that would read a story like this and say, well, God is not good or he wouldn't allow them to be taken. They was taken because they committed sin. Pure and simple. But God did not forget his covenant with them even though they committed sin. That's the point we got to remember. They confessed their wrong. They came back. God forgave them, remembered his covenant, and he showed mercy to them. That's what I want to remember. It's just not that blaming God because everything's going wrong. It's remembering his mercy. That's what I want to remember. And not forget, not forget. Now, he took them back to the promised land. They sang God's favor, unfailing covenant love towards them. They sang, they made a joyful noise. 
People shouted with a, a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. The noise was heard afar off. Now, the text doesn't say that the, uh, and the noise was heard afar off. Now, the text doesn't say when you read this that the people was uh, directed to do this. It seems that it was a spontaneous overflow of praise. The people was thankful. If anybody there was mad about the 70 years, it just didn't show because it was spontaneous praise that was being there because it wasn't like, oh, look what God did. No, it was saying like, look what God has done. He's brought us home. We didn't even recognize a place. We looked around us at all these other gods and we set up an altar according to the law of Moses and next thing we see, the fire of God fell and consumed the sacrifices. Then we knew God was on our side again. That's how we knew. We saw it with our eyes. So that's what they was thankful for. God, uh, the people, they gathered there. They heard the trumpets, the clashing cymbals, and the people singing, and their hearts was filled with gratitude for God's grace toward them. And it was just not the religious leaders. It was the people gathered together that worshiped the Lord and was thankful for what God was doing. Now, when it comes to us, we should be thankful, and we are thankful, of, of just what God has done for us. We should make our life uh, a house of worship, literally our house, a house of worship. And then I want to end with this. If you will go, um, I just want to, the last two, the last two verses in Ezra 3. All right. I'm going to read one verse first. The prophet Haggai is speaking and he said this to him. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. Now he's speaking to Israel concerning this, the house that they're building this, this is concerning what we're talking about right here, the people coming back. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than the former. Okay, now, in Ezra 3, verse 12, but many of, this, many of the priests and Levites, chief of the fathers, who were ancient men that had seen the first house, that had seen... Uh, the first house when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes wept with a loud voice and many shouted for joy. 13, so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. Um, for, the, for the people shouted with a loud shout and the noise was heard afar off. Now, Haggai is telling them there is something. I'm going to just tell you what I think. This ain't from nobody else but me. I'm going to just comment on what I think these two verses mean. It's what it would mean to us through me. He's telling them, Haggai, you're looking at a physical building. The ancient men, you got your eyes on what used to be the glory of Solomon's temple. But your eyes is looking at a building. When you look at Solomon's temple in money 
like into us, it is in the billions. So they was weeping. They're just looking at stones and they're just, they're just weeping. And he's telling them, no, you don't understand the God that you're serving, that you just seen a few days before sent fire from heaven. He is gonna be born in human flesh. It is not about the building. You're sitting here weeping because you're worried about the building. And you got the young ones that are so excited to see this and you're over here crying. God help me, help me that I'm not a stumbling block to the young ones that come in and say, I've been coming here since 82 and tell them, say, boy, you ought to see how it was when I started the church here. No, may I tell them, may your eyes see greater miracles than I have ever seen. May you do greater things in the Lord. May your prayers accomplish so much more than I have ever seen. Remember, it's not about the building. It is about, don't let my cries of what God done in the past hinder and prevent someone that is so excited about what God is doing in their life. I don't want to hold nobody up. I don't want to just get weary in my thinking, oh man, God has done all he's going to do. No, he has not. May God move me if I get in that kind of situation. God touch the young ones that's hungry for God and not let the ones that's been here hold them back. God is nowhere done. He's nowhere through. And it's the old man sitting there crying while the young ones was shouted and look what God is going to do. And the, they was ones that knowing the glory of the latter house is saying, but you don't understand all this money was spent. And Haggai's trying to tell them, it's not about the money. It's about Christ in you, the hope of glory. God is gonna put his spirit in you and that spirit is gonna lead and guide us into all truth. And they're just sitting there crying and you don't understand, you don't understand. And they're just sitting there. And the Bible says they are weeping and crying so much they couldn't discern. Who's doing it the most? The ones that was looking at the past or the young ones that's got their eyes on the future? And they're thinking, I don't know what to do. No, 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 don't let me be that. Let me always tell them, may God use you greater, more. May you do more. May you do forever more. Don't look at me as no kind of benchmark. Look at yourself as what God will endlessly do in your life. And don't let me or anyone else tell you that God is not working. And I'm telling you, where they sit there and they took the, the young ones and they just said, we just, you don't understand. In our day, there's millions spent here. You just sort of seen it. Really? Really? God is not done. God is not done. He is not done. Whenever I try to say, I just box. And, and there could be someone that has such a heart for God. God, I want to see more. And I'm saying... In my sorry, if I get sorry in my attitude to think, you know, I'm just wore out, you know, I, I, I'm just tired, I'm tired of coming to church. You know, if I ever get in that kind of attitude, and 
and then somebody's just thrilled, and I say, yeah, yeah. I just box them in is all I've done. God, don't never let me do that. Let me encourage them. Be a strength to them. And say, you chase that dream. Just as David is one thing I have desired, and that will I pursue. Encourage them, strengthen them. And go, run, pursue it. That is what I think it means. They was restoring worship. And I don't know. They came back. The people gathered as one. And there at the end of Ezra 3, my prayer was that the young shouted them down. I'm telling you of the goodness that God I'm not, in a few days I'll be 65, so if you think I'm knocking the old, I'm in the boat with them. So don't, so don't, don't look at that this way. Please don't look at that this way. What I'm saying, my true prayer to God would be, let me be an encouragement to the ones that has a, such a hunger, a hunger for God. Let me be an encouragement. Let's stand. This message has been brought to you today by the media ministry of Hatchbend Apostolic Church. We pray that it's ministered to you in some way, and we'd like to take this opportunity to invite you to join us in service here at Hatchbend Apostolic. Our Sunday services begin at 10 a.m. and our Wednesday night service at 7.30 p.m. For any more information or to speak with our ministry staff, please feel free to call our church office at 386-935-2806 or you can visit the contact link here on our website. Again, thank you for listening and we pray God's richest blessings on you and your family.